Morning, church. What more can be said than that? Let's pray, can we? Gracious Father in heaven, we love you. Lord, those times that we get our eyes on the waves and the wind, Lord, teach us to say that it is well with my soul. Lord, you are the creator, and the waves and the wind still know your name, and you're in charge of, you're sovereign over your universe. So, God, we give you this time. We ask that, Father, you would be our teacher and our guide, that, Holy Spirit, you would open up hearts and you would reveal your heart, Lord, that you, you love your kids. And, Lord, the reason you've left us your word is that, Lord, we would stop destroying ourselves because we're your masterpiece. And so as we open up your word this morning, we pray for utterance. We pray for, uh, God, just for you to do your thing. And, Lord, we know you're able, and we thank you. We love you because you first loved us. So we give you this time on purpose in Jesus' name. And all God's kids said, Amen. So have you ever left anything in your car over a period of time? Maybe a baby bottle or some food or something like that. And you don't realize it's there until, you know, you start smelling that it's there. You ever have that happen? And because you smell this funk, as it were, you start kind of looking for it because that's not good, and that's not natural, so, something's got to be here. Well, we've all heard the idiom, sweeping something under the carpet, right? I mean, that's been around forever. And the Free Dictionary says this about to sweep something under the carpet means to ignore, deny, or conceal from public view or knowledge something that's embarrassing, unappealing, or damaging to someone's reputation. And so I thought about that, and I, why would somebody sweep something under the carpet? Maybe, and here's the, the reasons I came up with, maybe you'll come up with some other ones, but I thought maybe the truth is just too painful to bring up, and so better to sweep it under the carpet than to bring the truth up. Maybe we fear someone's reaction about bringing that truth up, and, and we don't want to get in this confrontation, so we just sweep the thing under the carpet. Or maybe, and here's my favorite, Maybe we hope and dream that the problem will just go away on its own and we never need to bring it up again. There are really two types of people in life, and you probably have both of these members in your family. There are some people who thrive on, desire, hunger for any kind of drama in their life at all times. You know that person? I hope my sister's not watching. No, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Totally kidding, kind of. The other extreme are those people who hate drama so much. They don't want drama at any cost, so at any cost, we just won't correct anything because, man, I don't want that drama in my life. You know, when it comes to leadership, these two type of people exist as well. There are those who will correct an issue, and there are those who will not and they couldn't be further apart in deciding on how to handle things within the institution. Usually, though, this is what I've found, at least in my life, that sweeping something under the carpet is usually detrimental to all involved. As painful as the issue is, if you don't deal with it, it will grow and fester, and it will be more painful down the road. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're finally in chapter 5, and we're going to continue in that verse-by-verse -verse study. Remember, up to this point, Paul has been very clearly talking about the problems the church at Corinth has. 
And so like a good parent, Paul went to them and he was concerned with their purpose and their faith and their family and their marriages and their time and their money. And so he started to correct them and he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we learn that people will reflect. We will automatically reflect the things we believe in. We will imitate those who we believe in just as the moon reflects the sun. And so Paul gave this church all the opportunity they need to correct the issues that were going on, but they were slow about correcting themselves. Now, as we get started this morning, remember, because this is important, these people were actually born-again Christians that Paul is correcting. These people were believers, we're told. And, and so Paul loves these Christians, but catch this, he had a thankless job of having the responsibility of also correcting them when they were wrong. And so in this morning's message, it's such a great passage. God is so good to us. He loves us that Paul is going to bring up a specific sin of these Christians and tell us how to correct them. So a little commercial break. Can we take a little? My baloney has a person. No, no. <laughs> different kind of commercial. Little commercial break before we get going. Before we get in the next couple of weeks of church correction, I need to reiterate. I need you to know, with all that's in me, I believe that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. Not a one of us, including the man speaking to you at the pulpit this morning, has arrived. Okay? Not a one of us have. I have a real testimony. Someday, if you ever want to hear it, I love to talk about myself, just like you do. Come and ask me. <laughs> But I have a real testimony just like a lot of us do. And so this is not judgment. And so if you say, he knew about what was going on in my life. No, God did. Take it up with him. But this, Paul meant this to help us grow. And so as a leader of a church, it can be so difficult to navigate church correction. Because we want to love people. We want to show grace to people. But we also have a chief shepherd who has left instructions on how to do it and how dare us ignore it. So, with that flowery commercial, Roman numeral one, there in your Sunday sermon notes, the blatant sin. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians 5, let's hear what Paul said. He said, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. All of you go, oh man, here we go. And such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Whoa. Let me tell you a truth. Even after salvation, here's a little secret. Do you know Christians still sin? The Apostle John says that if we say that we're without sin, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. So if any of you say, I don't sin, <laughs> the truth's not in you and you make God a liar. James 4.17 says, To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is called the sin of omission. Knowing to do good and not doing it, that's the sin of omission. The more common sin that most of us do is the sin of commission, where we sin actively knowing it's wrong. Okay, none of you do, but I do. I love the Apostle Paul, and Romans 7 is probably one of my favorite parts of Romans, because Romans 7, Paul has this bipolar moment. He's actually fighting with himself over the flesh and the spirit. 
He's fighting with himself and he's having this conversation, kind of like I do in the shower. He's having this conversation with himself. Romans 7.15 says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now... It's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. There in your notes, the sin here in 1 Corinthians is not speaking of an oops, I sinned. Rather, Paul is speaking of a catch this. You'll hear this several times throughout the message. An open lifestyle sin. We are not sin detectives. We are not sin sniffers. We are not going around hoping to catch you in an oops moment. None of us, not a one of us, wants our life played out on the big screen. I guarantee you, no matter how good you are, none of us wants that. Church correction is such a hot topic because no one enjoys being told they're wrong, especially me. But it's also been abused throughout the years, and so there's both sides of the issue, and it's such a hot topic. And within church correction, there can be varying results, right? Sometimes good, and a lot of times not so good. But the only way it's ever going to work is, is by both people, both sides, the one doing the correcting and the one being corrected, humbly submitting themselves before God. Checking your own life, checking your own sin, checking all that stuff out before you go and try and correct a brother. You see, it wasn't just that this person had slipped into sin. This open lifestyle of sin was going on, and the church, instead of correcting this flagrant, in-your-face sin, actually celebrated that they were liberal enough in their thinking to celebrate open, carnal sin. Aren't we a great church? We're all accepting. Mm. There in your notes, this one feels good. Sexual immorality is the ancient Greek word pornea, where we get our English word pornography. Catch this. It refers to all types of sexual activity outside of a God-designed marriage. Wow, it got quiet. This is not what a seeker-friendly church should be preaching on, Rich. One of the members at this church was actually having a sexual affair with his stepmother. Give me a break. And Paul says, this sin is so egregious. This is so bad, it's not even named among the Gentile pagans. Are you kidding me? It's so taboo. It's so rare that no one would dare talk about it. You know, and this you got to think about the Roman emperors of the day. They were known for their utter debauchery. They would do everything. And Paul says, this one? This isn't even named among them. Cicero, the ancient Roman writer and statesman, said, this type of incest was an incredible crime and practically unheard of. This is what Guzik said. It should have been enough that the Bible declared this sin. And it should have been enough that the worldly culture itself considered it sin. But the Corinthian Christians didn't seem bothered by it at all. And 
These Christians were supposed to be submitting their lives to the Holy Spirit, and yet there's this open sexual sin going on. And so Paul's going to offer three ways to alleviate this issue. Roman numeral two, mourn over the sin. Look at verse two. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So Paul says, you guys are actually proud of this. I mean, this thing, I can't believe, as bad as the sin was, the church is proud that this is going on. Come on now. Now, where it brings us hope is that even in the Old Testament, we were told that no one was capable of keeping God's law on their own, right? So this is good news. You could all take a breath and go, oh, praise God. There's a way out. None of us were capable of keeping God's law in the Old Testament or the New Testament. The prophet Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. There in your notes, since the Lord has given us a new heart and made us into a new creation, the things that break his heart should now break our heart. Now, as a Christ follower, we're not called to walk around totally downcast and always mourning, oh, poor me, I'm defeated, and, and you know, I'm just a loser, except when it comes to mourning over our sin. Remember King David. Here's a guy that was definitely bipolar. There were moments of depression and moments of rejoicing and back and forth, and he was dejected and he suffered plenty of loss in his life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed, or oh how happy, are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Notice, those who mourn will be comforted. So, Jesus, am I always supposed to walk around in mourning? You know, am I supposed to always walk around dejected and not happy and not full of joy? That's not what he's saying at all. The psalmist said in Psalm 30, verse 5, For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. I love what Billy Sunday said. Billy Sunday said, If you have no joy, there's a leak somewhere in your Christianity. <laughs> I love that. If you don't have joy in your walk, you got a big leak somewhere. There in your notes, true Christ followers will mourn over their own sinfulness, which is a godly sorrow which produces repentance, instead of a worldly sorrow which is sorry for getting caught. The biggest thing we ought to mourn over as believers are those who are going to hell without a Savior. It should break our heart. Because what breaks his heart should break our heart. We now have his heart living in us. And, and some commentators, by the way, said the reason why Paul didn't address the stepmother in this issue was because she wasn't saved. The Bible's silent, but it kind of makes sense that he didn't go after her as well. But when a brother or sister, catch this, is in an open lifestyle, in-your-face sin within the body, we have to go to them and correct them. And, and why? To kick them out? To, to embarrass them? No, to restore them. And we'll get more into that in a minute. So many people take the passage out of context of Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. 
you have no right to judge me. Jesus said, judge not. And, you know, we love that first part, but we don't want to take it in context. Jesus was not saying avoid judging other Christians. What he's saying is be careful of being a hypocrite in your judgment. Judge not or you're going to be judged that same way. So here I am living an adulterous lifestyle outside of church and I see you are too and so I come and correct you. No, that's not right. Paul put it this way in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, and that means cisterns as well. If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. There it is. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what is the issue? What's at stake? You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. You are God's poema, his masterpiece, his own work. And he's in heaven going, you're destroying yourself. Stop. It has nothing to do with God's a killjoy. It has nothing to do with that God doesn't want you to have fun. God knows what will destroy you. And so he says, now my hands and feet within the church, go to such a one and restore them. Go to such a one and embarrass them. Go to such a one, put a scarlet letter on them. No, go to such a one and restore them, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There in your notes, the word restore in Galatians 6.1 is the same word used to reset a broken bone. There is no fixing a broken bone without an examination. You go up to Sky Lakes this morning, you broke your arm. The doctor's just going to say, hey... I know you got a broken arm without even checking you out. We'll just throw some plaster of Paris on you. No, we're going to do an x-ray, right? We're going to see where the issue is and how we can fix that issue. Even so, we must be careful seeking restoration that the best outcome happens to the person being corrected. So fulfill the law of Christ. Love. It's all about love. It's all about restoring. It's all about making sure they stop harming themselves. Okay, and the second one, Paul says, Roman numeral three, is examine the situation. Examine it. Look at verse three with me. The Apostle Paul says, For I indeed, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's the hard one, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh. Why? That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I can't stress this enough. We're talking about open, in-your-face, proud-of-it lifestyle sin. Again, we're not called to be sin detectives. I'm not going to spend the night outside your bedroom and tell you what's going on. Frankly, I know too much about people already. And here's the other issue. If you enjoy this, if you enjoy correcting people, you got a real problem. <laughs> Examine yourself. Now, Paul may not have been there spiritually, but he said, look, I started that church. I'm your spiritual father. So though I'm not there physically, I have a right to correct. And, and, and can I just tell you, a pastor or an elder of a church is simply an under-shepherd, under the great shepherd. And, and by the way, you think it's easy 
just imagine who I have to give an account to. I have to go stand before a holy God and tell him why I did what I did. So if there's any pride in me, if there's any secret sin in me, if there's any of those things in me, he knows how to deal with me. And it won't go well for me. But Paul said, I have already judged. Now you got to know, he's not talking about judging their salvation at all. He's talking about the sin, the issue. He has no right to judge anyone's salvation. He's judging the behavior. And and Paul's not being disobedient to Matthew 7 because he's not doing this hypocritically. There in your notes, Warren Wiersbe said, While Christians are not to judge one another's motives or ministries, we are certainly expected to be honest about each other's conduct. You understand? We are Christ's body. We're not the Moose Lodge. We took down the horns. This church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has put the people in place. And so when he says to do something, we do it. We don't have a a, a vote to see if we want to put the horns back up. No, we are not a moose lodge. We're a fellowship. And, And so we get together first and foremost to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And then to worship and fellowship and evangelism. And so Paul said, when you're gathered together for service, not only am I present with you in spirit, but the Lord Jesus Christ is there, and he has told you how this ought to go. Notice what he says, though, and this is a tough passage. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. I look at that passage and I go, wow, that is, that's hard. Deliver such a one over to Satan. I talked about this a little bit last week. In in our context, in our culture, we don't really understand what was going on here. In Paul's day, to become a Christian, they didn't join a certain church. They joined the church, right? And, And so in our day and age, if you do something and you don't like what the leadership does, you just simply go to the next church. Boy, howdy, no problem. See you later. In their day, it wasn't like that. They would lose their friends and their family, could even lose their vocation, could lose their marriages. And and so they were sold out. And so to turn someone over to Satan is basically, you're putting them out of the fellowship. Why? So that they could be restored and they could repent. If all of a sudden you have no job, you have no friends, you have no family, and we put you out of the fellowship, it's to wake you up. Hey! make you miss what you had. And again, in our day and age, we don't have a clue because there's 109, I think, churches here in Klamath Falls. So, you know, if we don't like the way the 108 of them do, we go to the next one. Guzik said this, in today's church, this rarely brings a sinner to repentance because they can so easily go to another church and pretend that nothing happened at the old one. But you know what happens? Let me tell you a story about the sin unto death. And if you've never heard this before, it's a good teaching for you. There are sometimes a believer will not repent and God will end end up ultimately taking them out. Sometimes a sinner won't repent and so God causes or allows physical death. 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. GotQuestions.org said this, 
The sin unto death is willful, continuous, unrepented sin. There in your notes. We are not punished for our sin in the sense of losing salvation or being eternally separated from God, yet we are disciplined. There comes a point when God will no longer allow a believer to continue in unrepented sin. When that point is reached, and by the way, only God knows that, God will decide to take a life of that stubborn, sinful believer. That's the death unto physical death. God at times purifies his church by removing those. So, I mean, you might ask a guy that's got an addiction problem who truly came to Christ, and, and we can't know that. That's God's business, who's saved, who's not saved. I can't know it, you can't know it, only God alone can know that. But let's say someone has an addiction problem, and God has corrected them and corrected them and corrected them and corrected them and loved them and loved them and loved them and loved them, and, loved them, and that person in their addiction finally dies. And we think, oh my gosh, how terrible this is. Would you understand that we're left here to be his witnesses? Right? And this life is simply a dress rehearsal for heaven. This life is a drop in the bucket of eternity. God is not... Write me a letter, write me an email, tell me how wrong I am. But God is not concerned with you being comfortable here on planet Earth. That's not his mission. His mission is to prepare you for eternity. And if you cannot, will not repent, and you continue on, God loves you. And if you're saved, he's going to snuff you out. Knowing, he knows the future. It's amazing that God knows tomorrow like I know today. It's amazing. And, and so many people think of that and think, how harsh is that? No, how loving is that? That God wouldn't allow me to continue to destroy myself all the way to the point of utter destruction. How much love does it take to say, I see you're going to destroy yourself and I'm not going to have it. All right, so next Paul says, purge the sin. Look at 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So I'm from San Francisco originally, all my childhood and part of my adult life. And one of my favorite things about San Francisco is their sourdough. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I, I mean, Bodine's Bakery claims that they still use their mother starter from the gold rush days. Imagine this. That with the water, I mean, I don't know, and I've tasted a lot of sourdough, but I don't think anyone touches Bodine's. I, if you love me and you visit San Francisco, Bodines and Columbus Salami, okay? Just remember those two things. But the le leaven is basically a pinch of dough from the original batch, and it's left over. But leaven in Scripture represents sin, which permeates and contaminates the flesh, our soul and spirit. There in your notes, leaven grows quietly rotting and causing gases to puff up within the dough just as sin rots the body from the inside out. You know, Jesus, when he spoke about leaven to the Pharisees, it was about hypocrisy 
and compromise. And that's what he talked about, Levin. And here, the Apostle Paul says, you're a new lump. You were made without leaven. So if leaven represents sin, Jesus is saying, you're new now. I took the sin from you. So why do you still act as if the sin's in you? I've taken that. And, and so spiritually speaking, positionally speaking, Jesus became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So positionally, I'm sinless. And so what Paul's talking about is practically. So since you're sinless, stop it. Max Lucado said, you already have everything you need to be everything God desires. You have access to every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This well may be the best kept secret in Christendom. We underestimate what happened to us upon conversion. There in your notes. Because conversion is so much more than a removal of sin, it's a deposit of power. He embedded you with the essence of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so Paul says the Old Testament Jews were told that during the Passover celebration they were to remove leaven from everything of their food and even from their house. And next week Paul's going to very clearly, very clearly tell us it's not your job to judge unsaved people. Right? He's going to very clearly tell us, don't go to dead people and tell them to behave like they're alive. That's none of your business. But we correct those brothers and sisters among us. And notice he says, Christ, who is our Passover. If you've ever done a study on the Passover, this is an awesome picture of who Jesus Christ is to us. In Exodus, we read where, remember, Moses went to Pharaoh and he had all these plagues and they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't repent, he, wouldn't, he just wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't. And finally, God promised one final plague to end all plagues. He said, the angel of death is going to visit you guys. And he's going to go by and kill every firstborn of every house in the land of Egypt. Everyone. The only way around this, the only way, is to slaughter a lamb and take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost of your house. And when the angel of death passes over the house where there's blood on the doorpost, he will not kill the firstborn children. There, this picture that I have here, the promise was, everyone who by faith sacrificed a lamb and placed its blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would pass over and not kill the firstborn. So our Passover is when the Lord Jesus Christ delivered us out of our Egypt, our bondage, right? It, so now it's meant to be a new day, a new beginning. You're a new creation. You're not that person anymore. You know, we don't want to be like the pagans that Peter talks about, like a dog returning to its vomit. No, we're a new creation. Don't go back to that garbage. Exodus 12, 5 says, Your lamb shall be without blemish. The lamb back there in Exodus was to be without blemish, just as the sacrifice the Lord gave was a perfect sacrifice. Jesus, our Passover. Jesus is the lamb of God, that perfect lamb 
that shed his blood, that the angel of death no longer can touch us. We have defeated death and we're new creations. And, and, and catch this. Once the Jews were delivered from death because of the blood of the lamb, they were to eat the Passover supper. One of the requirements, again, was that there was no leaven in the bread. None. Because it represented sin. David Guzik said, Paul's point is both clear and dramatic. You must live unleavened because you are unleavened. There in your notes. But what you are is the basic message of the New Testament for Christian living. So let's get practical this morning. And again, this is one of those messages you go, man, I'm glad I visited today. Great day to visit. But to sweep something under the carpet means to ignore or deny or conceal from public knowledge, right? Something that's embarrassing or unappealing or would wreck someone's reputation. And, and why do we do it? Because the truth sometimes too painful. It, it just is. And, and sometimes we fear what other people will think. So it's easier. Trust me when I tell you. It's easier when a problem arises within a church just to sweep it under the carpet and pray to God that it goes away on its own and we don't have to deal with it. But you know what? Never does it go away on its own. You can't sweep problems under the carpet. And, and church correction is so hard because here's the deal. As a leader within the church, you don't want to lord it over anybody. Look, I'm a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. I'm telling you, if you knew my whole testimony, you may never listen to me again. I am a filthy wretch that Jesus pulled out of the gutter and saved and changed and transformed. And all I'm telling you now is I've done it the wrong way and I see the puke that that leads to and I've done it the right way and I want you to have abundant life. And so when God says, say this, we say it. In 20 years of ministry, in over 20 years of ministry, I've only been involved in church correction formally a few times, believe it or not. So I don't want you to think, oh, this happens all the time. No, it does not. Usually, something said, it takes care of itself. Only twice since 1997, says 24 years, since 1997, only twice have I seen someone get corrected for a flagrant in your faith, foul mouth, sexual sin, whatever it was, twice that the person did not repent and leave over it. And it was a crying shame. One happened at this church, and it was a crying shame because it did not need to happen. The body of Christ, the body of Christ is to be pure. Why? Because we represent Christ to a broken world. When broken people look at you and they see brokenness, why are you any different? When broken people see broken people who now are new creations in Christ, they're like, I want that. That's what I want. And so we represent Christ. Again, turning them over to Satan is not trying to evict anyone. It's trying to restore such a one. Think about the prodigal son who goes wayward. When he comes back, think about the celebration. When somebody in open flagrant sin repents and comes back, think about the celebration, the testimony of Jesus Christ who says you're a new creation and look, you're a new creation. That's what God wants. So let's end like this. So how do we correct? As just Christians, how do we correct? First and foremost, number one, before you do anything, 
Have some knee time. A lot of it. Seek the Lord. Get on your face before Almighty God and have an attitude of submission. Don't go off, you, you know, without any prayer time and think you're going to correct. Don't do it. And then follow the procedures laid out in his word. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's number one. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, If he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Then, 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. Now, can I just tell you something? There's something else you need to know before you go to the Matthew 18, 15. Okay? Because it's not a command telling you every time someone offends you, you must start church correction. You must go to them and correct. No, 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 no. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 8, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love, just like caulking, will cover a multitude of sins. <laughs> Sorry, it just does. But if you can, if you've been sinned against, and you've prayed about it, and you decided, you know what, I'm just going to let love, love cover it and let it go. I don't need to go every time that I think I'm put off by you and bring you into my office and say, let's have this talk. Hey, let love cover it, man. If you're offended, you only have two choices. So don't think you got six. You only have two. Number one, let love cover it. Or number two, privately. Step one, and don't you ever step over step one. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. One-on-one. -on -one. But I want the elders to go with me because I'm afraid. No. Sorry, that isn't how this works. Go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Well, I don't want to go to them one-on-one. -on -one. Then let love cover it. There in your notes, the instructions to correct another follower were not given in order to win the argument, but to win your brother. I used to think I wanted to be an attorney because I love to argue. <laughs> I love to win arguments, by the way. But... That's not what this is talking about. We're to humbly correct a kingdom sibling. So we must refrain from condemning them openly, publicly, and letting ten people know. You know, I'm going to put them on the prayer list. I'm not going to tell anyone, but hey, will you be praying for Susie? Because, you know, she really irked me. If the person hears you, then you can be reconciled and you can love them. And you know what? I'm telling you what, if you're reconciled with somebody that you can go to and say, hey, this has happened, you both apologize, love on one another, you'll never find a friend like that. You'll never find a closer friend than that because that person will trust you because they know, hey, you know what? I did do that to you. Hey, forgive me. I'm sorry. I didn't even realize that. But if they're not willing to repent, then you go and you take mature Christians with you. Matthew 18, 15 says you gain your brother. G. Campbell Morgan said the word gain suggests not merely the effect on the lost, but the value it creates for the one who seeks him. It teaches you. And, and again, right, there's those people who love drama. There's people who hate drama. Unfortunately, you're not given a choice. 
But then they don't listen, so you take two mature believers with you that are uninvolved in the situation. Not your best friends, not your yes men and women in your life. You take people who are solid in Christ, who can come alongside. I don't want to gossip about this, but here's what happened. I'd like you to go with me. Okay, if they listen, you gain them again. If they will not, if they're stiff-necked and they refuse restoration, then you take them to church leadership. And here's a little secret. Once you drop it in the elder's lap, you're out, Girl Scout. You're done. Stay out of it. It's none of your business. You've turned it over to the church. Let the church handle it. Stay out of it. Don't go gossiping about it. Don't go anything else. If it gets that bad, where you've gone three on one, the person won't listen, you give it to the elders, you're done. One of the least favorite parts of my job is church correction. It's very rare. Very rare. Just because Paul talked about it here in 1 Corinthians 5, I want you to know it's very, very, very rare. I hate it. Can I just tell you? I don't enjoy it one bit because I'm not a confrontational guy, believe it or not. I know that it's hard to believe, but it's true. And so when I get in a confrontation, I usually come on like a bull because I hate it so much. And I have had to teach myself, and through the taming of the Holy Spirit in my life, I've had to teach myself how to take care of these things and not take them personal. Every once in a while, I still blow it. Someone goes to those couple of things that I hate to be accused of, and I want to choke them in love. But <laughs> as a follower of Jesus Christ and as an under-shepherd of this flock, I have to follow his instructions, whether I like it or not. And by the way, just so you know, there's none of that going on right now, and I have no one in the back of my mind, so don't sit there and go, I wonder who he's talking about. But Jesus corrects his children because of love. Again, you've got to understand, you are his poema. You are his masterpiece. And he knows that sin destroys. And so the whole reason that Paul lays this whole thing out and goes in this long chapter about this is, God wants you to stop hurting yourself. And if we're God's hands and feet, then we have to correct too. God is not a killjoy. He loves you. Oh, how he loves you. I, I just want to leave you with this as I close, because this is a, kind of a common sense bottom line. Let's cut to the chase guy. If Jesus was looking for a reason to condemn you, he had it. Right. Jesus had it. He had you dead to rights. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus had us. He was looking for a way to save you. And so he willingly came down, was beaten and hung on a cross for your sin. And so now he's saying, if I was looking for a way to destroy you, I had you 100%. Every one of us in this room, that, that's not his goal. His goal is restoration. So correction's goal must be restoration as well. And, and sometimes it doesn't work out because people get stiff-necked, don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be told they're wrong, and I understand that. But Jesus would say, stop hurting yourself. I love you. I love you so much, I willingly took the cross, the chains, the whips, all of that. I willingly took that so that you could have abundant life. I'm telling you to stop hurting yourself because I love you that much and it hurts me to see you destroy yourself, so please stop it. So you got to know that's the heart of church correction. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up and 
Every week we have elders and their wives who'd love to pray with you in the back. If there's something going on, you want someone to pray with you, we would love to. We, we count it a privilege to pray with you guys. And, you know, and if, if there's something really going on that you just need to talk about, I'm here, you know, at least five days a week, sometimes more than that. But, you know, we have people on staff who'd love to talk to you. We have some women on staff who'd love to talk to you as well. But can I just tell you, Jesus loves you. He loves you so much that he willingly left his throne in heaven to die for you. And if that's not love, I don't know what it is. So don't take this as a, a, a beating. Rather take this as he loves me enough to correct me. Because he does. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And God, the only reason we could even love you is because you loved us first. And Father, I'm, I'm so thankful that you will stop me from running down the road to destruction. I'm so thankful that you would consider me, Lord, and that you would correct me. Though it doesn't feel good at the time, I, I know it's for my benefit, it's for my good. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for making us a new creation. Thank you, Lord, that positionally we are perfect in your sight. Help us, Lord, to practically surrender to your spirit and live it out this week, we pray. So God, bless us as we go. Help us to worship you now. We just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's kids said... Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.